The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all focus and get uh, our attention on the Word of God. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together tonight to study your word. We thank you that it uh, provides the means of real freedom and power for the Christian life as God the Holy Spirit uses it in our life. He transforms us bit by bit from our natural character shaped and molded by the sin nature to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus, concentrate on the study of your word this evening, put aside the thoughts, the cares, the concerns for today or for tomorrow, that uh, the Holy Spirit might teach us your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, there is one other announcement, and you all know that uh, tomorrow the Da Vinci Code opens. My favorite, the reviews apparently are all bad, which is nice, but my, uh, my favorite comment was that the movie is a faithful rendition of the book. It is boring, poorly written, and dull. So... I thought that was that was uh, pretty much summed it up. But we have some of these books that, on the Da Vinci Code by Josh McDowell put out by Campus Crusade for Christ that are really well done. Uh, they've re- really done a tremendous job of just synthesizing down the pertinent information and making that uh, e- easily understood. So we have some on the table out in front. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, which is where we're going to spend most of our time. But before we get there, just to remind you of our context, we don't want to lose sight of where we are, what we're doing. We're studying the book of Hebrews. And in the course of our study in Hebrews, we are doing some application that comes out of the verses that we're currently studying. Hebrews 5.13 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a... Babe, he is a a believer who ought to be older, but he's acting young. The word here for babe is the Greek word napios, which really indicates uh, somebody who who should be acting more mature, but is acting like a baby. Like uh, you might have used this term for a sibling who was uh, uh, perhaps a teenager and acting like a four-year-old. So that's the idea. It's not a positive term in the sense that he is a brephos or a spiritual infant, but it really is a a term more of of an insulting kind of term. Verse 14, the writer says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of their senses exercise to discern both good and evil, which is a poor translation. I've said that, 
it should be translated those who by consistent practice or consistent use of their senses, which means uh, which is the Greek word gumnazo, meaning to be disciplined. So it has the idea of those who by consistent discipline, okay, consistent discipline in the application of the Word of God, consistent discipline in study, application, utilization of the Word of God, have their ha, are uh, trained so that they can discern. Good and evil. Discern has to do with the ability to distinguish or evaluate. It's the development of spiritual critical thinking skills. So that as we think, go, are exposed to whatever, we can think about it in terms of doctrine. And that is a, that's a level of application that is, goes beyond what most people think of as application. I get pretty frustrated sometimes when people talk about I just wish it were more applicational. In other words, give me five points on how to how to be happy in marriage, or give me you know ten points on how to manage my money. You know stuff that's really practical. As if being able to discern good and evil and truth and error isn't fundamentally more important, because you end up seeing these same people who sat in a church in a pew where the Word of God has been taught for ten years, and then they make stupid decisions because they really never understood what discernment was all about, and I, which is an outgrowth of application. So we're using that as a way to segue into a subject we've been looking at for a while on divine guidance and the leading of the Spirit because there's a lot said by different Christians about what these things are and what could be more fundamental, really, than, than making decisions and how to discern what pleases God in decision-making process. And one of the things that people talk about is the leading of the Spirit. I put a quote up there last week and the week before on uh, uh, divine guidance or the leading of the Spirit from Dr. Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, and use that as a way to critique what he is saying. Is this really what the Bible means? Let's look at the context. Don't just, don't just uh, buy into something because somebody has a good name or reputation, you've been told they're a great teacher, a great theologian, and just because they tack on a bunch of Bible verses, look those verses up, see if they say what they, they are purported to say. That's one reason why I have always made a point to put these verses up on the overhead for you. I don't want to give you ten points on something and then just give you references. I want you to to look at those references. How many times have you heard that in your life and you've gone home and you look at those verses and you, and you wait a minute, I'm not sure how this verse really connects to this point. So that's what I'm, why I do that is so that you can see what, what these connections are in the, in the Scripture and train you better in the Scripture. So we're looking at the topic of leading of the Spirit. We looked at several introductory things last time, but we need to be reminded of what they are. And the fundamental question that we're asking is, is the leading of the Spirit that's talked about in Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18, are these, is this term, the leading of the Spirit, the same thing as divine guidance? And I hear this all the time. Well, the Spirit led me to do this, or God just led me to this job. Is that what this is talking about, or is it talking about something completely different? Now, to understand that, we have to understand the context, and I'm going to put this chart up on the overhead, if somebody up on the uh, uh, website, 
Somebody will remind me to do so. Romans 1.17 sets up the main issue in the book of Romans. You know, I just love doing broad sweeps like this because so often we end up uh, doing microscopic dendrology. You know what dendrology is? I learned that when I went to Stephen F. Austin State University because it had the largest forestry department in the world. And the first thing every freshman had to take in uh, forestry was dendrology. I just thanked God I never wanted to go into forestry. It's the study trees. And what, so often what we do is we do microscopic dendrology. We take all of our time analyzing the cell structure of the leaves on each tree, and we never look at the forest. You know, and we can't see the forest for the trees, you know, the old adage. And so many people don't understand the, the, the basic structure of the Bible because they, all their life they've just looked at these, you know, microscopic studies of Scripture, and you have to do both. There's a balance. You have to do the detailed exegesis, but then you have to put it together in the overall structure of context. So the issue in Romans is an explanation of God's righteousness, his character, the righteousness of God, and how the righteousness of God is satisfied for salvation, and how man can be righteous, and what the results of that righteousness are. For in it, Romans 1.17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals what? Righteousness. That's the core issue in the gospel is righteousness. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, saving faith to spiritual life faith, two kinds of faith. As it is written, the just... That is, those who are justified by faith, the just, the just by faith shall live. Most versions translate that, um, the just shall live by faith. But the by faith goes with the justification, not with the living. This isn't a verse that's talking about uh, post-salvation so much as those who are justified by faith, which is the first five chapters. Of Romans shall live, and Romans six, seven, and eight talk about that life, and we'll see that in just a minute. So the foundations in one through three, Jew and Gentile, all violate God's righteousness. That's the message uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying in those first three chapters. Chapter one gives an opening introduction and concludes with all Gentiles fall short. Chapter 2, all Jews fall short. Chapter 3, therefore everybody falls short of God's standard. Jew and Gentile all violate God's righteousness. So if you don't measure up to God's righteousness, how do you get it? God freely gives his righteousness through faith alone. That's chapter 4 and chapter 5. Justification is connected in 5.1 to reconciliation. And therefore, because we're justified, we have peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. So the first five chapters of Romans talks about the fact that we're lost and how we get saved. It's in chapter 6 that it starts talking, this text starts talking about how the justified believer shall live. So chapters 6, 7, and 8 are the main chapters in the New Testament, the foundational chapters for understanding what God says about the spiritual life. And the first points laid out in chapter 6, 
that the justified believer should consider himself a slave of righteousness. But how does he do that? Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is an attempt to do it just by pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It's operation personal morality. And that's Paul as a believer. And he says, man, I just struggle with this sin nature. I don't do the things I want to do. And I do the things I don't want to do. And he just, he's like, I think every believer, if they're serious about living the Christian life, at some point or for many years in spiritual infancy, almost feel like they've got you know, multiple personalities going on inside of them. There's part of them that runs all the way to the sin direction. The other side runs opposite, and they can't figure out how to how to put keep things together. And they do what they don't want to do and don't do what they uh, know they should do and want to do. And that's Paul's predicament as a believer in chapter 7. And through chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's one word that's left out doesn't show up until chapter 8, and that's the Holy Spirit, because that's the key. So Paul builds this logical case. Chapter 6, the justified believer should consider himself a slave of righteousness. So how do you do that? Well, he tries to do it by keeping the law in chapter 7, but all it does, the more he tries to keep the law, the more he realizes he's a sinner, and he's just totally frustrated. And then he comes to chapter 8 and, rec- and explains that only the Holy Spirit can produce righteousness and life. And that's first eight chapters of Genesis. Yeah, I mean of, of Romans. See how simple that is. You just, and, and once you understand that, and then you read the individual verses within that structure, then it it really opens things up to you and makes and it, it makes a lot more sense. Well, we got about that far last time. The introduction then of chapter eight is crucial. It says therefore. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, in Paul, Pauline terminology, stands for positional truth. Our position in Christ. Our position in Christ is different from our day-to-day experience. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant that we put our faith alone in Christ alone. And as a result of that, there is... No condemnation. Now, this word condemnation is an interesting word in how it's used in the context of, uh, of Romans. It's the, the Greek word katakrima, which is the intensified form of the word krima. Krima normally translated uh, ju- uh, uh, judgment. Cond- katakrima is an intensified form, has to do with condemnation. And so this word is only used, katakrima is used a couple of times, as we'll see in a minute, in Romans, Romans uh, 6, 16, Romans 6, I mean, uh, excuse me, Romans 5, 16, and Romans 5, 18. And it's a reference to what really has taken place in, in a person's life through the unbeliever before he's justified. So it's a flashback. Romans 5, 16 says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. See, that's talking about, really, it's a flashback to what he's covered in Romans 1 through 3. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. Whose transgression? Adam's transgression. From one transgression resulting in condemnation. The word judgment is the short word crema. Condemnation is the long word katakrima. 
But on the other hand, the free gift, so there's this contrast between judgment and the free gift. The free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So then it's through one transgression there resulted condemnation in Romans 5.18, katakrima, to all men. So that's talking about what they are before they're saved. But after they're saved, you have Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation. So we were in a state of condemnation, and now we're in a state of no condemnation. doesn't matter what you do, you're in a state of no condemnation because you're justified. That's your position in Christ. Now, here's a little chart that I stole from Ron Merriman. Those of you who are here during the pastor's conference on, I think it was on Thursday morning, Ron Merriman, who has been president of, uh, I think, Western Bible College up in Denver back in the 60s, been a pastor for many years, uh, taught on the value and importance of knowing Greek and using Greek in the study of the Word, because a lot of pastors somehow forget that. And so he used a number of different illustrations on different words from the book of Romans, And I thought this was really helpful because it's such a good visual display of where the emphases are in the book of Romans. For example, in the first column, top word, we have the two words, krino and katakrima. I didn't have word room to put krima up there also, but you have krima and katakrima, which are variations of the same same word. Krino is the verb to judge, to condemn, and katakrima is the noun from that verb, judgment. What's interesting is in the th- in these three sections of Romans, in one nineteen to three twenty, the verb krino, the verb to judge, is used ten times. The noun katakrima for judge, uh, or uh, excuse me, krima, is used three times for a total of thirteen times. The concept of judgment and condemnation are mentioned in those first three chapters of of Romans. But then when you go to 3.21 to 5.21, krino isn't mentioned at all. And in that section, katakrima is mentioned one time. That's the yellow one. Uh, excuse me, I got that backward. Yes, krima, excuse me, katakrima is used twice. Krima is used one time. That's what I did. Katakrima is used twice in those two verses I just showed you in Romans 5.16 and 5.18. But that's really a throwback and a summary of what he had said in 119 to 320. Krima is used one time in Romans 5.16. So those references, but that's only three references to judgment in 321 to 521. And then when you get to the section on the spiritual life, on sanctification, in 6.1 to 8.39, there's only one mention, and that's katakrima in Romans 8.1. And see, this is what, one of the things you learn in Bible study methods, it's called the law of proportionality. If God says says something ten times in one chapter, and he doesn't mention it all in the next chapter, what's being emphasized? So it's a matter of proportion. So the proportion, you have 13 uses of the concept of judgment in the first three chapters, and then it just almost drops, drops completely away after that. Then you come to the next verb in the in the chart in the in the, the middle horizontal lo, uh, line is pistuo, which is the verb to believe, and pistis, which is the noun for faith or trust. And pistuo, pistis, or uh, pistuo, the verb is not used at all in the first three chapters. 
the noun is used one time. But when you get to the second section, which is talking about how you're saved, justification by faith, notice the shift. Pistuo is now used seven times, and pistis is used 17 times for a total of 24 uses of the word faith. And the section is talking about how to become justified. I remember years ago when I was, before I went to seminary, I'd see stuff like this, and I would just just you know, almost bounce off the walls, I'd get so excited. This is just so interesting to see how the Bible is so well laid out and so organized structurally for emphasis. And you just can't see this stuff so much in your English text. And then on Pistuo and Pistis, when you get into the sanctification section, the spiritual life section, where you're dealing with something different, the verb is only used one time and the noun is only used two times. So you have... One use in, this, in the section on sin and condemnation, 24 uses in the section that deals with how you get justified, and only three uses in the area of salvation. Where do you think the emphasis is? It's in the area of justification. Then you come to the third verb here, key, key verb here in, in, in uh, Romans, and the verb is zao, meaning to live, and the noun is zoe, meaning life, and zoe is the word that John loves to use and others love to use and it, it's, uh, it, it, Paul uses it some and it refers to eternal life, the quality of life not bios which is the physical bio, biological life but it is the uh, eternal life is the word zoe or zao it's not mentioned but the, the verb zao is used two times in uh, the first three chapters zoe is used one time for a total of three times life isn't mentioned at all in the middle section Isn't that interesting? Life isn't mentioned at all in that middle section, which is uh, between chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 5, verse 21. Now, just just as a little side note, okay, hold your thought, and we're going to have a little asterisk and go to a footnote. At the pastor's conference, and I really haven't said much about this, at the pastor's conference, Dr. Nimala presented a paper where he was arguing for eternal life being at least implicit understanding of the gospel. I do not agree with him. There has developed a division in the Grace Evangelical Society, which has done some tremendous work. It's headed up by Bob Wilkin and and, uh, Zane Hodges. Zane was my Greek professor at Dallas. I've known known Bob for years since uh, I was up in Dallas in a doctoral program 20 years ago. We have a great relationship, but these guys have gone somewhere where I can't go and a lot of men can't go. Uh, right now, and that is that in the gospel you have to have this implicit understanding of eternal life, or you're not saved. In other words, you have to have uh, an understanding of assurance of salvation, at least implicitly, or you really haven't understood the gospel. And I don't think that's true. I think that if you believe Christ died for your sins, you're saved. I even think if you invite Jesus into your heart, you're saved. Because if what's going on inside your heart, that is inside your soul and your mind, if you're believing in Jesus alone for salvation, then it, and somebody comes along and says, well, what you need to do is pray a prayer and say, God, I want to invite Jesus into my heart. God is the one who looks on the heart, and he knows that what you are doing in, internally is you're trusting in Christ alone. You've just been told some real sloppy verbiage to use, and you've been told you have to pray a prayer to do that. And if you notice when I give my invitation and prayer on, on Sundays, I always say that God, the minute you trust in Christ, God in his omniscience knows what you're trusting. You don't have to pray a prayer. If you pray a prayer, you've already trusted in Christ. 
And you're already saved. Because once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, the instant you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, you're saved. You don't have to tell God you did it. He's omniscient. He already knows. He knew when it was going to happen a billion years ago. And you don't have to have this concept of eternal life uh, but this has created a division, and it's created a new organization of pastors. In fact, I didn't really understand all this stuff until recently, uh, realized all this was going on, because I just don't keep up with them that much. But um, uh, two or three years ago, there was a group that met at the pre-trib rapture study group in, that meets every year in December, and they organized a new group called the Free Grace Alliance. And uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher, you've heard me speak of him. He's chancellor from Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. He's part of that group. And um, I'm part of that group and a number of others. And so, but this has become an issue now is this issue of is, is an implicit belief in eternal life part, uh, necessary part of the gospel? And I don't think it is. And I think this really demonstrates this right here is because when you get to 321 to 521, talking about justification by faith, the word life, zao or zoe, isn't even mentioned. It's not mentioned until you get into sanctification. And I remember I learned this from Prof. Hodges years ago, is that the concept of zoe is such a pregnant term. I mean, it's just loaded with meaning that we often think of it as life that doesn't end. But that only has to do with the quantity of life. But the word has, has a depth to it. It's the quality of life. And Jesus said, I came not to, what? Not to steal and destroy, but to give life, Zoe, life, and give it abundantly. That is talking about, the abundant life is talking about that rich quality of life that you get uh, as you grow as a believer. So it's really not inherent, necessarily inherent in understanding, understanding the gospel. But what we see here, when we look at the use of the words for life in, in Romans, is that the verb and the noun are used each used 12 times in the section on the spiritual life from chapter 6 1 to 839 for a total of 24 times. So judgment is used 13 words for judgment and condemnation are used 13 times in the first three chapters, which is where Paul's getting us lost. Words for faith are used 24 times in the section on how you get saved, how you get that righteousness of God. And then words for life are used 24 times in the section on sanctification. You see how that just breaks out? You can see where what Paul's talking about in each one of those sections. And that's what we're talking about in Romans 6 through 8. And so when we get to our study of Romans 8, and we're talking about being led by the Spirit, what do you think? Just from this word study, what would you guess the leading of the Spirit is going to be related to? Just take a little guess. Life, experiencing that fullness, that abundant life that Christ has for us, as opposed to the, this concept of divine guidance or God, God giving you impressions or uh, liver quiver or whatever you want to call it to decide whether to buy this house or that house or in, in, you know, in, invest in, uh, in Ford or Chevy or General Motors or Microsoft or Intel or Apple or whatever. You know, those aren't the decisions that uh, the leading of the Spirit relate to, whether or not to marry you know, Sue or Sally or Jane or whoever. So... Just structurally, you lay these things out, and that really gives you an overview, uh, a, sort of a map of what 
Paul is saying. So we get into chapter 8 and I have some basic summaries. First of all, based on Romans 6, and I'm excuse me, based on Romans 8 1, the believer is no longer under a judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven. That's what it means. There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment on you, no matter what you do. Uh, even if you reject Christ, even if you deny the gospel, even if you get involved in, in the worst sins you can possibly imagine, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The believer is no longer under a judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven because he now possesses justification, the righteousness that comes from God. This is a righteousness that we should understand this. This is a righteousness that it's not like God giving us His righteousness in the sense that He pulls something out of Himself and gives it to us. It is a righteousness that is equivalent to God's righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness. It's a it's a standard that God is giving to us. It's a standing, a judicial standing of perfection. He is declaring us to be not guilty of anything. It is a judicial standing that is being a perfect righteousness that is being imputed to us. Second, the arena of application here is to those who are in Christ, that is, anybody who's trusted Christ as Savior. This occurs at the instant of salvation, and this is what baptism of the Holy Spirit means. It doesn't mean speaking in tongues. It doesn't mean uh, some sort of experience. It doesn't mean that you're going to swoon or pass out or be... Uh, slain in the Spirit. There were only two people in the Bible who were slain in the Spirit. That was Ananias and Sapphira. You don't have any experience of this. You only learn about it after you're saved through a study of the Word. Third point. So verse 1, that is Romans 8.1, reviews the point of 6, 1 through 5, which emphasizes a couple of things. Chapter 6, Romans 6, 1 through 5, emphasizes, first of all, the potential of walking in new life because you're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because you are crucified with him. That's what that means. You're crucified with him. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. That's not water baptism. That's not going out and having being immersed in water. That's not water baptism here. This is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which this is identification. That's the ultimate significance of baptism. Baptism literally means to dip, plunge, or immerse. But the word for baptism was used to signify identification of something with something, frequently in an initiation into a new position. So when we read this, if you do a word substitution of identification, you get the sense of what he's saying. Therefore, we've been buried with him through identification into death. We've been identified with his death so that his death is our death. His death becomes the death of our sin nature. That's what he's going to say. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the baptism into death is towards something. Toward what? Newness of life. There's that word, the noun, zoe, newness of life. The purpose for that identification with Christ is so that we can have in our experience, not just not position, but in terms of our experience, a new quality of life. 
So there's the potential because that only becomes real if we take in the Word of God and walk by the Spirit of God. Second, we have emancipation from the tyranny of the sin nature, but not the presence of the sin nature. Before you're saved, all you can do is sin. That's all you can do. Can't do anything else because that's all you have. You can do morality, but it comes out of the sin nature. So emancipation from tyranny, but not the presence of the sin nature, Romans 6, 7, for he who has died, that identification with Christ's death, he who has died is freed from sin. And the word sin there indicates the sin, sin nature. We're freed from it. But it's not gone. I mean, if it was gone, there, would, there wouldn't be, have to be any commandments or prohibitions in the New Testament. Just say, you know, once you're saved, you're not going to sin anymore. Now, some people think that, but they have such a weak view of sin. You know, if you, only, if you only think there's three things you can do to commit sin, and you don't do those three things, then you never sin. But then if you get proud about it, you've you got a problem. So... There's always those mental attitude sins that sneak up on you. That's what Paul realized in Romans 7. Romans 8, 2. For the law goes on to explain this. So after we go back and pick up in verse, verse 1, a summary of chapter, chapters five, 5 and 6, we go on in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. See, that's a reminder of what I just read in, in uh, Romans 6, 7. We're free. Free. And the word law here, the law of the spirit of life and, and uh, death, should be understood as the principle. The principle or the application. For the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus the, has set you free from the principle of sin and of death. So because of the Holy Spirit, because He's the Spirit of life, we're truly free from the sin nature which only produces death. So who's He talking about here? He's talking to the Romans, and He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. Is that what He said? Just want to see if you're alert. Make sure you're not sleeping here. He says, Set you free. What's he, what, what does that mean? That means that when he is speaking to his audience, he says, you have been set free. In other words, he is viewing them as regenerate, justified believers, not unregenerate. You can't read that in here. He views his audience as regenerate, born-again, justified believers. They have been set free from the law of sin and death positionally. Now, as we look at this, we have to understand three key words. The word freedom, the word law, uh, the word uh, sin, and the word, the word death. Law means principle. We've seen that already. Life and death. The law of the spirit of life is in contrast to the law of death. They must be understood in opposition to one another. Now, since you are... Since you are saved, you're no longer spiritually dead. You're not physically dead. So since he's going to go on and apply the possibility of being dead 
to his readers, he's got to be talking about a different category of death. And we've gone over this, that there's seven different kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death, spiritual death, sexual death, carnal death, operational death, and the second death, and positional death. Positional death is Romans 6, uh, 4, and 5, but this is operational death. He's setting you free from operational death. This isn't just setting you free from spiritual death. Because it's the law of the spirit of life is talking about what? It's what you, the potential of the abundant life in, as a result of being identified with Christ. Romans uh, 8 verse 12 and 13 expands this. So we have to go down and look at that core context. In Romans 8.12 he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. For, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's this contrast between living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit, living by the Spirit. He says, living according to the flesh, living by the Spirit. These are the two, the two opposites, the two polar opposites. Either you're living according to the flesh or you're living by the Spirit. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die, operational death. If you're living by the Spirit, then you're putting to death the deeds of the body. So this is, since this is addressed to brethren... Back in verse 12, so then, brethren, and because they have been set free from the law of sin and of death, they are truly believers, he says there's an obligation that goes with that. And that obligation is to live according to the, or to live by the Holy Spirit. That's our responsibility as believers. Of course, if we fail in that, then we will uh, have nothing but wood, hay, and straw, and that will all burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. So the law of the spirit of life is contrasted with the law of sin and death. And this goes back to what he says in Romans chapter 6. Now what I'm going to do in Romans chapter 6, open your Bibles, because I don't want to take these verses in their proper order. I want to hit the high points to, make a, to just draw out some, some principles. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is talking about the fact that we are positionally freed from the dominion of the sin nature and what that means. And so in verse 16 he says, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now this would apply to either a believer or an unbeliever, but he is speaking to them as believers. And he's, because he's already said you've been set free from sin. Now, if you present yourselves or yield, that's where that concept comes from. Now, you hear the old, the old theologians like Chafer and Walver that say yieldedness, part of being filled with the Spirit or staying filled with the Spirit, is yieldedness. Well, what yieldedness means is to present yourself to God. That's how it's translated in more modern translations. It's to stay in fellowship. It's just a synonym for abiding in Christ. It's a synonym for staying submitted to the authority of God and not going into rebellion and uh, getting out of fellowship and, and, and sin. So he says that you have this choice. You can either present yourself to 
uh, your sin nature and be a slave of sin nature and which results in death. What kind of death? Operational death. Or you can present yourself to God and that results in righteousness. Now, what kind of righteousness? Just talking about positional righteousness, justification? No, you're already justified. You already have imputed righteousness. This is talking about experiential righteousness that builds capacity for spiritual maturity. This is the production in the believer's life of experiential righteousness or experiential sanctification. Verse 21, just skip down a couple of verses. We'll fill in the blanks in a minute. There he says, Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? Before you were saved, you were involved in all kinds of religious activity or you were involved in in pagan immorality, whatever it was, but you thought you were getting something out of that one way or the other. Now you're ashamed of it. The outcome of those things is death. Not it's, But see, that's talking about the production value. It's not talking about... That's not why they were spiritually dead. See, you're, spiritual, you're born spiritually dead because of Adam's original sin. That's what your condemnation's for. You, you sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. I know that's tough to handle. You, are, you sin because you're a sinner. You're born condemned. When, when you come out of the womb, there, you already have a sin nature, and Adam's original sin is imputed to you. You are a sinner, and as you grow, you sin because you are constitutionally a sinner. You're not born neutral. You're not born perfect, and then you choose to sin. But what, So what Paul's talking about here is that the outcome of, the, of those decisions that you did before you were saved is is operational death. It is an, uh, an experiential death. It's not talking about that original spiritual death condition. Verse 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. And he's talking to believers. Now, so often this verse is translated and, and applied as a salvation verse, but it's not. See, salvation and justification was covered where? Romans 4 and 5 from Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5. What happens in chapter 6? We're talking about the post-justification life, the post-salvation life, for the wages of sin. See, the payment for sin in your post-salvation life is operational death. This isn't talking about spiritual death. It's operational death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Wait a minute. This sounds like it ought to be a salvation verse. But see, he's talking about life. Remember that chart? that you don't have any mention of life until you get to chapter 6, after you're justified. There has to be that distinction between what's required for justification and what's required for sanctification. They are distinct doctrines. You know who doesn't separate those? It's Roman Catholicism. See, in Protestant theology, Luther discovered that justification is a one-shot legal act that happens at the instant of salvation. In Roman Catholicism, you get a little bit of grace each time you participate in the sacraments. And if you build up enough, then you get saved. But nobody knows how much is enough, so nobody knows that they're really saved. See, so justification is a process. Justification in Roman Catholic theology is progressive. So sanctification. You see, they've made justification and sanctification equal. So if you're not sanctified, you're not justified. Lordship salvation does the same thing. 
You know, if you commit this sin, that sin, and that sin, or you deny Christ after you said you were saved or after you trusted Him as Savior, you weren't really saved. You didn't have the right kind of faith. It's just a Protestant form of the same error that Rome had. That's why John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and when it came out in the first edition, he translates, and if you don't read the footnotes, that's why in books like that you've got to read the footnotes and you've got to know the technical issues. He translates Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and he says, Pistis, which is the word for faith in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, should be translated faithfulness. For by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. Is that right? See, that's a process. He needs to go back to Rome. Because that's what lordship salvation essentially is, is the same error that the Roman Catholic Church has. Justification is distinct from sanctification. You're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You become a new creature in Christ. But sanctification is separate. So if you're saved, but you still live in sin, then the wages is operational death. You don't experience that full, abundant life that Christ has for you, which is just as free, because it's all grace, which is just as free as the never-ending part of it, the life that you get when you trust Christ as Savior. Okay. Romans 6.23, or 6.16, 6.21, 6.23, all emphasize the reality of operational death for the believer. Now we go back to Romans 8.6. Romans 8.6 says... For the mindset on the flesh is death. Same principle. He just re- is reiterating it. If your mind is set on the flesh, that is a sin nature, sin nature control is death, operational death, not loss of salvation, not that you weren't saved. It is operational death, dead works. And as we get into the next chapter of Hebrews, he's going to say things about not going back to dead works. Same concept, operational death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. See, you you have two options. You can walk by the Spirit or walk by the sin nature. If you walk by the sin nature, it produces operational death. If you walk by the Spirit, you have your mind set on the Spirit. It's another way of saying it. You have life and peace. Now, we did Romans 8.1, Romans 8.2, jumped ahead to these other verses to illustrate the principle of operational death. And now we're back to verse 3. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. See, the law was never designed to do two things. It was never designed to give you justification. and the, That is the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law was never designed to give you a spiritual life. The Mosaic law was the law code for the nation. And it had to do with the ritual operation that was part of the ritual observance of the tabernacle. And what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See, the law could not save. But God did. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It wasn't sinful flesh. It means that it appeared in human flesh. Physical humanity. In the likeness of human flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin. There's that word, that second time it's used in this section. He condemned sin in the flesh, katakrima. Verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What was the requirement of the law? Righteousness. 
So it's fulfilled in us because of imputation of righteousness. So he's just going back in those first four verses of Romans 8 to go back and review those, those concepts he's covered already. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now when you read that, you have to watch the punctuation. There weren't any commas in the original. That relative clause that begins with the relative pronoun who, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, that defines the meaning of that uh, first person plural uh, pronoun us. Who are the us? The us is those who don't walk according to the flesh but walk according to the Spirit. The us isn't all believers. The us is those who walk, is believers who walk according to the Spirit. So what we see throughout this section is there's two, uh, two polar opposites you, that you have. Uh, in Romans 8, you have the law of the Spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. You have the, in verse 5, you have those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh, and the opposite is those who live according to the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. And here you have those who walk according to the flesh versus those who walk according to the Spirit. So you have these two opposites. So the, the way you ought to read that is not the first option, in us, period, which would read that um, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, period. But it's us defined as us who do not walk according to the flesh. Those in us who fulfill, um, it should be in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Ephesians 5.8 uses the same contrast. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See, that's position. That's who you are. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And that implies that you can walk as a child of darkness even though you're a child of the light. See, there's two different kinds of Christians. And there's lots of people who say, no, that, that's wrong. That's elitism. That's terrible. That's terrible. In fact, there's a, uh, some of you may run across this, there is a Bible translation that's out, that's been out for a few years now called the uh, New, I think it's the New Electronic Translation, NET, the NET Bible. And when that first came out, I had several people say, oh, you've you got to get this. It's just tremendous. This is really great. If you open it up and you look on the pages, that the bottom third to two-thirds of every page is all these translator notes and technical information on, on Greek grammar and everything else. It's just fabulous. And I knew who published it. And so I wrote the publisher, and I said, who are the translators? And they told me it was the entire Greek department at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I knew who these guys are, and I knew what their theology was on the spiritual life. And so I started looking at critical passages. And I went to 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, where it talks about abiding in Christ. And the footnote says, this does not refer to the elitist view that some people have, that some Christians abide and some don't. All Christians abide in Christ. And then I started looking at a lot of other verses, and I said, you know, this is terrible. This is terrible. You're going to get a lot of people who don't know the technical stuff. They're going to get this, and they're going to look at those notes, and it's really going to have a, have a terrible effect. But it's consistent with the theology that is being taught by the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary now, at least as it regards to the spiritual life. But that's because to a man, they're into lordship salvation. 
1 John 1, 6 makes the same kind of comment. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That we are believers. Believers can lie? Sure. So if we claim to be walking with God, but yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing truth. We're not putting into application the doctrine in our soul. Back to Romans 8. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So that's the carnal believer. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That's the contrast between carnality and spirituality. Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, operational death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, what does spiritually minded mean here? Now, think in terms of the phrases we've seen already. Walking according to the Spirit. Uh, living according to the Spirit. And now we have another phrase, being spiritually minded. See, all those are talking about the same thing. They're synonyms. So if you live according to the flesh, you walk according to the flesh, you're fleshly minded, all those mean the same thing. And on the other side of the, of, of the, of the spectrum, you have walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, and being spiritually minded. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God. Now, let's stop a minute. What is a carnal mind? The carnal mind is the mind that is dominated by the sin nature. That applies to two groups of people, doesn't it? Unbelievers are always carnally minded because they can't be anything else. And it also applies to believers. So the carnal mind, this is, a, this is what the, the technical word is a gnomic principle. That means it's a universal principle. The carnal mind, whether it's a believer or unbeliever, is an enmity against God. When you as a believer operating according to the flesh, according to the sin nature, you're hostile to God. And when you're out of fellowship, you can't be subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. See, there, there's this impossibility. There's this flip side of that same statement that's made in Galatians 5.16. If you walk by means of the Spirit, it's impossible to fill, fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if you're operating on the flesh, it's impossible to please God. Same thing. Romans 8.8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wait a minute, we just had a shift in terminology. And if you're not careful, you'll get lost. Walking according to the Spirit or walking by the Spirit is one thing. But when we get here to Romans 8.8 8, and we take make this shift, then what happens is it's talking about the unbeliever. The unbeliever is... In the flesh. That's talking about an unbeliever. If you walk according to the flesh, that's according to the standard of the sin nature. But it never talks about believers as being in the flesh anymore. Because we're not. We're in the spirit. So here, what Paul is doing is applying this to the unbeliever and saying, see, the carnal-minded believer is acting just like an unbeliever and is as unproductive as an unbeliever. Romans 8, 9, but you, see what he's arguing here is, look, the unbelievers carnally minded, the unbelievers carnally minded can't please God, and you as a believer, if you become carnally minded, you can't please God, but who are you? You're not in the flesh, 
But you're in the Spirit. See how in the flesh and in the Spirit are used differently. You as a believer are not in the flesh, but you can walk according to the flesh. You can walk by the flesh. You can live by the flesh, but you can't be in the flesh. Because in the flesh is the unbeliever. So here he's talking positionally, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And as a believer, the instant you trust Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Key verse on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So it is having the Spirit of Christ that gives you the ability to walk by the Spirit. But if you're not saved, you can't do it. But if you are saved, you may not do it. Romans 8.10 says, And if Christ is in you... The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. See, if Christ is in you, you have imputed righteousness, and therefore the Spirit can be life for you. Here's here's a little chart to show this shift. At the top I have according to the flesh and set on the flesh. That equals death. those, Those were synonymous phrases. In contrast to that, you have the phrases in the early part of the chapter, according to the Spirit, and set on the Spirit, and that equals life and peace. Set on the flesh is hostile to God. And then there's a shift from the phrase according to to the phrase in thee. And in the flesh refers to unbelievers. They can't please God. Romans 8, 9, you believers are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. See that difference? So Romans 8, 9 is not talking about the contrast between the carnal believer and the the carnal believer and the, and the spiritual believer, it's talking about the unbeliever. And the argument here is saying that the carnal believer is just living like an unbeliever. And he's producing the same kind of dead works. So then we come to Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does because that's positional reality, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the spiritual life comes as a result of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit who's dwelling in us. And when He is filling us operationally, that's what we call the filling of the Spirit. And that happens when we're walking by the Spirit. That's after salvation, after justification. Then verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh... To live what? According to the flesh. Since it's not in the flesh, that's the unbeliever. But we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the Spirit. So we have this obligation not to live according to the sin nature. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice the phrase again. It's according to, not in, but according to. If you as a believer live according to the flesh, you will die. Operational death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That abundant life. That's the context of verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons, mature sons, huios, sons of God. So led by the Spirit in verse 14 must be understood to fit within the whole flow of these phrases. The mindset on the Spirit, uh, the mindset uh, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, and being led by the Spirit. They're all talking about the very same thing. And that is what we'll see in Galatians 5 is covered by the phrase walking by the Spirit. 
in this context, being led by the Spirit, is just another way of describing life according to the Spirit in which the Christian is putting to death the deeds of the body. So the leading of the Spirit here is guidance into the revealed or moral will of God. Remember our categories? The moral will of God is God's revealed will, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So the leading of the Spirit here has to do with the leading in relation to putting to death the deeds of the flesh, applying the moral will of God to our life or the revealed will of God uh, to our life. So the leading here is not guidance in decision-making. The leading here is guidance into making decisions related to applying doctrine to our life, doing that which is pleasing to God. And the issue is that obedience to that will would be impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And when we do it, when we're led by Him and we apply the doctrine and we grow, that produces a mature Son of God, a huios, not a technon, which is a child, but a huios, an adult son. It only comes by being led by the Spirit of God. He leads us through His Word. So once again, it's that twofold operation of the Word of God with the Spirit of God produces maturity in the child of God. So we'll come back next time. Ran out of time. Come back next time. We'll look at Galatians 5 and the context there. And see that it's talking about the same thing. Galatians was the first epistle that Paul wrote. Romans is a more mature explanation of everything that's in that's in Galatians. Galatians talks about justification in chapter two and ends up with the spiritual life in chapter five. Same thing as in Romans. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Pray that we'd be challenged by what we study, that we'd walk by the Spirit according to the Spirit that we might pursue spiritual maturity, be sons of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.